Well, good morning again, everyone. And uh, this is the first Sunday of Advent, as was mentioned. How many of you are excited to see a few Christmas decorations up? Sing a few Christmas carols. Anybody not? Got a Scrooge among us? Okay. Great. I invite you, if, uh, if you have a Bible or a device, to turn to John chapter 2. And um, for those joining us online, wanted to mention that after the message, uh, we will be remembering uh, God's death for us, Jesus dying on the cross. And we'd invite you, if you have uh, bread and a cup of water, a cup of juice, uh, you're welcome to join us with us as we do that. John chapter 2, and today we're talking about Jesus clearing the temple, and I'd like to begin with this question, what are you passionate about? Some of you here passionate about sports, you get excited about sports. What about music? Someone here, you're excited about music, it energizes you. Uh, what about photography? Saw someone from Woodside this week out in the early morning taking some pictures uh, in the area into photography. Uh, how many of you uh, into working out? Just uh, love working out. Um, how about scrapbooking? Any scrapbookers still doing it? Okay, there's a few. I see a few hands. Okay, right, right. What motivates you? What drives you? What energizes you? Today we're going to get a glimpse of what Jesus was passionate about. He had a purpose and a passion for his purpose. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's wonderful that you can have passions and, and have things that you can do, but all of those passions are to be shaped by the ultimate passion. And so I want to begin, is your passion the same as Jesus' passion? Or are you not passionate about what he is passionate about. God's vision for your life is that as you go through life, you wouldn't chase after the wind, a phrase from scripture that means, you know, chasing after things that are ultimately are meaningless, just as you can't catch the wind. Um, your career's not going to last forever. Pleasures aren't going to last forever. These worldly pleasures, all the things of this world, they're not lasting forever. Are you chasing after them and you really couldn't care about God and the things of God? Or do you have a passion that matches Jesus? And uh, as we, just before we look into the story, I want to remind us again of John's purpose in writing this account for us in the life of Jesus that we find in the Gospel of John. John is not writing to you and to me simply to tell us what happened. Oh, Jesus did this, Jesus said this. But he wants what happened to him to happen to you and me. He wants us to see, and he is going to give evidence after evidence after evidence, that Jesus really is the Son of God, that he really is the Messiah, the promised one, and that by believing, that we would believe like he believed in Jesus, that we would have life in his name, eternal life, that you would live forever with God. So he's writing for that purpose. John is not simply saying, hey, I'm just telling you what, what happened, and if you'd like to believe, that's wonderful. Um, just believe, take it by faith. He doesn't want that. He wants you to look at the evidence and investigate. And parents, if you have children growing up in today, you need to be intentional to help them to think through, to reason, because the Christian faith is based on 
evidence on what Jesus did and, and his followers that saw that. So you want to teach your kids creation evolution. Let's look at the evidence. Are, is the Bible trustworthy or not? Let's look at the evidence. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Let's look at the evidence. Because in our culture, there's sound bites going all the time and people just like, oh, okay, I believe that. And John doesn't want that. He says, look at the evidence. And when you do, my heart is that you will believe and have life in his name. So John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, we're looking at the passion of Jesus, and Jesus is still changing lives today, and there's people still with his passion today, and may that be true in your life. The clearing of the temple. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So John tells us that Jesus with his disciples are going up to Jerusalem. Now on a map, Jerusalem is south of where they are in Galilee. But Jerusalem is elevated. If you were to go from the north of Israel to Jerusalem, you would climb. It's, it's very elevated. And there, the time of Jesus, as they were making their way to Jerusalem, there would be the temple. And it was a sight to behold. You're climbing, and you could just see the temple in the distance. And we're told they're going there for the Passover. It's an annual festival where excuse me, the Israelite people would remember what happened 14 or so hundred years ago, back to the time of Moses, when their ancestors had been slaves for over 400 years in Egypt, and God um, uh, freed them from the Egyptians, and they came out of that into the land, and the story of Moses, you can find it in Exodus um, chapter 12, but there was this, this Passover, that they would put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, and, and um, and they made their way out, uh, out of Egypt. And so for 1,400 years or so, every year they'd remember the Passover. And it was followed by a week called the, uh, the Festival of Unleavened Bread. So for one week, they would be in Jerusalem. So Jesus is going with his disciples up to Jerusalem. And uh, if you can imagine them seeing the temple in the distance. And the temple was the focal, focal point, not only of Jerusalem, but of the Passover. Everything revolved around the temple. And people would make a pilgrimage from all over, not just within the land of Israel, but foreigners would come as well who wanted to worship the true God, and they make their way to Jerusalem. This population at that time, probably somewhere around 200,000, it would quadruple in size to about 800,000. And so there was people camped out. I mean, you couldn't get an Airbnb, right? It was just like, sorry, uh, not happening. And so you'd sleep on the fields, and, and, uh, and, and Jerusalem was packed. Jesus makes his way to the temple area, and there, instead of seeing people worshiping God, what was required every Passover is that you would buy an animal or bring an animal. Most of the time they were rejected, the ones you brought, so you'd have to buy an animal, and a sacrifice would be made on your behalf. A couple doves, lamb, it would be made on your behalf. And so people would have someone, uh, the, the priest, uh, make the sacrifice, and that they would then worship. But Jesus, instead of seeing people worshiping God at the temple, he sees something else. He sees corruption. Notice that he sees 
buying and selling of cattle, sheep, and doves. There was nothing wrong with that. But we know from the other accounts um, that Jesus, that this buying and selling, that um, Jesus' house had been turned into a den of robbers. John calls it a market. The, places, the prices were inflated. Instead of coming and getting an animal to be sacrificed at, at, a, at a reasonable price, they were just, it was, it, it, people were being exploited. The, the poor were being crushed. You been to a Blue Jays game? Okay, it's one thing for a hot dog to pay triple the price. Okay, I'm there, I gotta do that. But man, when you're coming to worship God and the prices are just jacked right up, I mean, that's not good. And in addition to that, people would come, especially the foreigners, but there was a temple tax, people would come and have their, their coins, Roman coins, changed into the Jewish coin, and the exchange rate was exorbitant. They, they were just being ripped off. So all of these people coming to worship God at the temple were being ripped off. But not only that, something else was happening. Notice it was taking place in the temple courts. So if we go back to the time of Jesus, this is just the model of the temple, um, at the time, the second temple, sometimes referred to as Herod's temple. But in the temple, you'll see um, right this area here and this area here, all around here, that was the court of Gentiles. So if I'm not a Jew, I could go and worship uh, in that place. So I would uh, um, reverence God, repent of anything wrong in my life, trusting God that the sacrifice that, that covered my sins, I would pray, I would praise God, place of humility. That's the temple courtyard, the court of the Gentiles. Here is the court of women inside here, court of men, and then uh, and sometimes referred to as the court of Israelites, and then in here was the court of the priests, and that's where the sacrifices were made. Huge altar right around, right in here. And so that altar was just going all the time, and that's where the sacrifices were made. And then here, inside here, was the sanctuary and then the Holy of Holies. So Jesus comes, but instead of finding people here praying and worshiping, it's all about commerce. It's all about business. It's all about the religious leaders making money, ripping people off. So all of the, the high priests, the chief priests, the priests, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they had a whole racket going. Typically or often, the, um, the buying and selling of animals, which wasn't wrong, was done um, probably just at the, the other side of the Kidron Valley in, in the Mount of Olives area. But the, these, peop, these high priests, and they had brought it right into the temple courtyard, trying to make a buck from the people. And um, Jesus is upset. He's upset first for the hypocrisy. The religious leaders who were called to help people to worship, come into the courtyard and worship, uh, weren't doing that. The religious leaders were going about superficial worship. Their hearts weren't right with God. Oh, with their lips, they'd pretend to honor God, but their hearts were far from them. Jesus was upset with the hypocrisy. He was upset with greed. People being ripped off, the poor being taken advantage of. He was, ripped up, he was upset about the lack of compassion for people. Friends, can I just remind us today that we, we're not to mistake God's patience for his acceptance. Today, there are lots of people in the name of religion who are hypocrites, who are taking advantage of people, oppressing people in the name of God, but even people that say, I'm a Christian, 
being a hypocrite. Can I tell you, that is not okay. You need to repent if that's you. I want to say to those uh, watching online and you're thinking maybe of coming to Woodside, one of the things I'm proud about at Woodside is we don't have perfect people here, but we have people who really want to follow Jesus, who are the real deal, and, and uh, we're not about hypocrisy because Jesus is against that. He's against greed. He's against people being taken advantage of. So Jesus comes into the temple court, sees the corruption, and it leads him to do something. He Notice in verse 15, he makes a whip out of cords. So the cords uh, from, you know, um, the, the bird cages, uh, from leading the animals, he grabs some cords, and notice it says he makes it. So he's actually braiding it. Could you imagine? All this chaotic scene in the temple courts, and Jesus is over here making something. Could you imagine one of the merchants saying, hey, pal, what are you making over there? And Jesus is saying, oh, just give me a minute. I'm going to show you, right? And he drives them out. Interesting. It's almost like a miracle. How does this one guy drive out all of this buying and selling and commotion? How does he do it? But he drives them out. Notice, nobody's maimed. No human, no, he's not punching people. No animals are being killed. He's simply clearing them out. No cars are being flipped and burned. Okay, no people with flags. He's simply clearing out his passion for God to be worshipped and for people to be treated well is causing him to do something. Notice in uh, verses 16 and 17, he says, Stop turning my father's house into a market. This is not right. And then it says, His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. That zeal, that passion that Jesus had um, for God's glory, for God to be worshipped. They quote from Psalm 69, uh, 9. That's where David has this zeal for God uh, to be worshipped and praised. And so the Messiah Jesus, they finally get it that yes, the Messiah has that zeal. Jesus had the zeal. He's not crazy. He doesn't have anger issues. Please note, Jesus did not have any anger issues. Do we understand who he was? Jesus has a heart that is lowly, that is gentle. If you are wondering how God feels about you, look at Jesus and his arms are open. Come to me and I will give you rest. Look, stop trying to make yourself, stop trying to get me to like you. I love you. Come to me. And if you make a mistake or you sin, he's willing to forgive. He has this heart. And he is the lamb of God who's going to lay down his life for the world. That's who Jesus is. But he's also the lion of Judah. He has a holy ferocity at sin. He has to judge it because that's who he is. When people are hurt and oppressed, and you look around and people, seems like they're getting away with everything, that's not okay with Jesus. He's got to judge that. And he has a, a passion for justice. So if you've got the picture of Jesus where he's an, a nice guy in the sense that he's like a little timid, kind of always on the verge of tears, oh, everybody just be nice, that's not Jesus. He loves people, but he is holy, and doing things that are wrong are not right. So we see here his passion leads him to action. Love is not indifferent. 
when there is injustice, things being done that are wrong, it leads to action. Jesus was a man of zeal and passion because he was a man of love. In your life, the more you understand and you see who Jesus is, the more you seek him and get close to him, his passion will become your passion. Where you won't want God to be honored. You will want people to know the truth about the true God. You will want to come and worship God and sing to God and praise God. And even if you're not a singer, you're just like bowing your heart before him. You will find yourself with a passion for God's glory. But you'll also find yourself with a passion for people's well-being. That you don't take advantage of people. You don't hurt people. You want to be a blessing to people. And we see that when you are saying, God, I just love you and thank you for all you've done in my life and, and thank you for helping me and being my strength. What do you want me to do? God is saying to you, do you see those people over there? I want you to bless them. I want you to help them. And we're going to see this in just a few moments. So Jesus comes into the temple, sees corruption, things are not good. He drives out everybody. And then there's pushback. And 2,000 years later, we still have pushback. People trying uh, to bring justice into different countries and things, and there's pushback. Verse 18, the Jews, the religious leaders, all those high priests and priests, Sanhedrin, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So all of those, once the temple court has been cleared, all the leaders come upon Jesus and they say like, and here's the question really, who do you think you are? They didn't say, why did you do this? Because they knew what they were doing was wrong. They knew the whole racket and system wasn't right. But the question was, like, who gives you authority to do this? This isn't your temple. This is our temple. And for three years, that question is gonna, they're going to dog Jesus with that question. Who, who do you think you are? Jesus has already claimed that it was his father's house. They had a sense that this guy was claiming to be equal with God. A, a, Jew, a Jewish leader in that day would never say, call God his father. But Jesus did, which meant he was claiming to be equal with God. Like, who do you think you are? And Jesus says to them, responsible, I'm gonna, there's gonna be proof of my authority. There's gonna be proof that I am who I, I say I'm going to be. And he says, it's going, to, it's going to be in a while, but there will be proof. And here it is. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Destroy this temple. Jesus is looking ahead to the cross. His body, the temple of God, the presence of God, would be destroyed on a cross. But three days later, it would be raised again. Proof is coming. But in the present they have no clue about the cross because in that day, in, as they interpreted scripture, the Messiah would not suffer. He was all about reigning. So if Jesus was the Messiah, the cross was nowhere on the radar of anyone, including his disciples, but he's referring to the cross. They think he's referring to the temple. I'm going to destroy, the, or this temple is going to be destroyed and I will raise it again in three 
days, speaking metaphorically of his body. Now, can you imagine in that day, that would have went right through Jerusalem. First, now they weren't tweeting or retweeting, but they were like, the temple was just cleared by Jesus of Nazareth. And he said he was going to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. I mean, it would have gone viral right through everybody. How do you know? How do we know? It's because three years later after that event, Jesus is appearing or standing before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, and they want to convict him of a crime to get him on a cross, and they're trying to get something that will stick. And finally, a couple of false witnesses come forward, and they say, we heard him say, going back three years, we heard him say that he would destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. Now, Jesus never said he would destroy the temple. But they say, he said that. And then a short while later, hours later, when he's hanging between two criminals on a cross, Matthew tells us that people passing by shook their heads in disgust at him and said, you, the one who's going to destroy the temple and raise it in three days, come down from that cross if you really are the Son of God. Three years later, they're remembering this event. Who do you think you are? It's a joke. You're a joke. And then they say this. Notice, they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days. So let's talk for a moment about the temple. What's, what's the whole deal with the temple? Which temple are we talking about here? So here's, here's a, a, uh, an aerial shot of what is the temple mount here. You'll see in Jerusalem. This is today. Now, in Jesus' day, there was a temple, Solomon's temple. Or sorry, not Solomon's, the second temple. Now, just kind of a little uh, history of, uh, of the temple and why do we need a temple. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he made us in his image. And we know the first man and the first woman in a garden, probably in the area of Mesopotamia. They were in harmony with God, in harmony with each other. There was no temple because they didn't need a temple, because God's presence was right there with them. But the first man, the first woman chose to sin. Sin entered into our experience. Sin always separates. It separates us from God. It separates us from one another. It separates couples, separates marriages, separates friends. There's always a consequence to sin. And God, who is holy, cannot simply let sin in his presence. But yet that God, who loves you and me, had a plan to do something about the sin, and that's the whole story of Jesus dying on the cross. But before Jesus on the cross and that ultimate sacrifice, there would be a temple. And the first temple was known as a tabernacle. And the tabernacle, this moving sanctuary, this back at the time of Moses, would be carted around, and this was the place where sacrifices were made and God's presence and the people could be. And the idea here is, is that sinful people couldn't simply waltz into the presence of a holy God. There was a tabernacle. After Moses, years later, around a thousand years before uh, Jesus, David comes along, King David, and says, I want to build a permanent sanctuary for God. God says no, but David's son, Solomon, is given permission to do that. So Solomon builds this temple in 930 to 980 during his reign. And it's a huge, magnificent structure. But then in 586 BC, the, Roman, uh, the Babylonians come in and destroy the temple, 
And uh, many of the Jews are carted, they're exiled. But years later, 70 years later, um, the Jews start to come back. And in the first wave is a man called Zerubbabel, and he um, is made the governor of, of uh, Judea, and he begins to rebuild the temple. And it's the second temple. He finishes, they finish it in 516 BC. It's a smaller temple. It's not as big as Solomon's temple. It's not as nice as Solomon's temple. They didn't have the resources that they once did, but he rebuilds the temple. And then about 500 years pass, and because foreign powers were invading the land, the temple fell into disarray. So the time of Jesus, just before the time of Jesus, Herod, who has some authority in that area, not because he wanted God to be worshipped, because he wanted to please the people and keep in power, he says, I'm going to rebuild the temple. I'm going to... Um, reconstructed. And so for 46 years, this temple had been uh, remodeled to give it some glory, to give it some splendor. In fact, uh, it's believed that that temple was still being remodeled when it was destroyed in AD 70, when the Roman governor Titus came in and destroyed it and um, leveled uh, the temple so that not one stone would be on another stone. That's why we don't see a temple there today, because it was destroyed AD 70. Jesus, when he died on the cross, when his temple was destroyed, it was raised the third day. Sin, the ultimate sacrifice, was made for you and me. And that's why when you die, when you see Jesus in eternity, you're not going to see a temple because you don't need a temple. You don't need sacrifices because the once and for all sacrifice had been made. So here's just the story of the tabernacle temple. And the temple that Jesus, uh, at the time of Jesus, was uh, the second temple, or the Herod, sometimes referred to as Herod's temple. Now, I just want to mention this too. When Jesus died on the cross, um, about three years after this conversation, some believe he died just kind of in this area here, and then some uh, right up here. I believe it was right up here, but it was outside of the walls of Jerusalem right here. Uh, today, uh, down in this area here is the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. King Herod had that built to, as a retaining wall when the construction of the temple, um, went with the reconstruction of the temple. So that's still today. And in this plaza, people come, uh, Jews come to, to pray and, and other non-Jews in this plaza here. But here's what I'd like you to note too, is you'll see here, this is the uh, Dome of the Rock uh, uh, shrine and then the Alaska uh, Mosque here. The, um, these are both with the Islamic faith. And today the Jews would like to build a third temple right there, but they can't. And that's why the Middle East is a powder keg. And that's why sometimes in your news, it's like, oh, this happened in, in, the, in the Middle East and it's quite a big deal. And we as followers of Jesus, depending on our eschatology, what we believe you know, to do with the second return of Christ, some would say that the third temple will be uh, built because the Antichrist is going to go in there and uh, claim to be God. So um, again, that's something we hold lightly, not sure of that. But just to let you know that this area here at one time housed a temple and Jesus said, he's going to destroy the temple. Not that temple, but his temple. Notice that the disciples, after he was raised from the dead, recalled what he had said, then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Again, John wasn't like, and the followers of Jesus, like, we're just following Jesus, we believe he's the Messiah, just have faith. It was often two steps forward, one step back. They're like, is he really the Messiah? 
not sure. This just happened. This just happened. He's confronted by the Pharisees. What's going on here? Are you sure? After the resurrection, which changed everything, John's saying, I'm writing this so that you'll believe because of what we saw, because of the evidence. After the resurrection, then they started to put the pieces all together. Oh, when Jesus was talking about destroying the temple being destroyed, he was talking about his body being destroyed and raised the third day. And then he closes with these words in this section, verse 23, Now while he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Notice there, John again using the word believe, and he said, as Jesus spent that week there, there were many people who believed. But Jesus didn't believe in their belief. They had what we call a pseudo-belief, not a saving belief. They had a pseudo-faith, not a saving belief faith. And it's the same thing today. There's people that say, oh, I'm a Christian, but it's a pseudo-faith. It's kind of like, hey, Jesus, if you do a miracle and you feed us, Jesus, if you can heal somebody in my family, hey, I'll follow you. And John will tell us a little bit later in John 6 that a lot of those people that were following at one point because of things that Jesus said, they stopped following because they had a pseudo-faith. Do you have a real faith where it's not like Jesus, I'll believe if you do this, but rather, Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. And my faith is placed in you. If you're a follower of Jesus, is your passion the same as his passion? When you see unrighteous things, or you see needs, or you see people hurting or oppressed, do you bless them? Oh, God, use me. And when you see God not being honored, people just, God's irrelevant. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to worship him. I don't need to pray. Does that bother you? Oh, I want the truth to be known. The closer you get to Jesus, the more his passion becomes your passion. And we see this down through history. Jesus changing lives, people seeing who he is, and it changes what they're passionate about. Passion leads to action. If, you're, if we're followers of Jesus here, we are to be zealous for God's glory and we're to be zealous for the good of people. If we don't have any action behind that, we just, hey, we love God, we love people, but there's no action, we don't do anything, it's just sentiment. And sentiment doesn't change things. Action changes things. Just a few examples of what this looks like. William Wilberforce, some of you uh, know that name, uh, who was a member of parliament years ago, followers of Jesus. This was back in, in England, in Britain. And he was a member of parliament, and he saw people, he saw slaves, people being mistreated because of the color of their skin, because of their race. And because he was a follower of Jesus, he wanted to change things. And he persevered with that passion. Wonderful, amazing story, William Wilberforce. But passion, wanted to make a difference for people and bless people. You will find other people, other names, not famous, but other people seeing a need for a hospital in a place where there's no health care and building a hospital. You will see people building schools and universities in places where there's no education. And it continues today, example after example. Sometimes we get this sense from the media that hypocrites are, all Christians are hypocrites. You know, it's just like, 
Somebody's telling me after the first story, hey, you referred to that. Were you watching Survivor this week? No, I wasn't watching Survivor, but there's lots of other programs. I guess on Survivor there was like a Christian, but of course that Christian was a hypocrite, right? So we see that, people think, oh, Christians are hypocrites. But the reality is Christians are doing more good for people still today than people that don't know Jesus going to darker places. We don't see it on the news, but it's happening all around us. Just remind you of something like Compassion International, where people, followers of Jesus saw a need for kids that were in poverty, kids that didn't have any education, and said, we're going to start a program so these kids can get proper nutrition, so that they can learn in school, so that they become leaders. And they tell them about Jesus, that God loves these children so that these children can flourish. Uh, Samaritan's Purse, another ministry that sees um, needs, um, people in war zones in, that have suffered in, from a natural disaster, that um, are, are struggling uh, with disease and famine, and they're going in with supplies to help these people and telling them about Jesus as well. That's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. Jesus' passion becomes our passion. At Woodside, can I just give you a few examples of us here with our missions? Um, we support missions, uh, many of them from Woodside that have gone out, but over in Austria, there's a house of hope for refugees. Telling people about Jesus, but trying to show the love of Jesus. In Ecuador, as we heard last week, there's a, in addition to the church, there's a school and a camp, and so many kids get to have fun at camp, get to learn in school. In uh, Rwanda, there is um, help to, for the Kaziba, uh, the uh, refugee camp uh, Kaziba, where we're trying to help others in that camp and, and um, missionaries there who we support from this church who um, have worked with street people and have uh, worked, are working, they're working with professionals now, have worked with single uh, ladies trying to get an income. Uh, in Zambia, um, some, many of you have been to Ambabala Island trying to, to, to build wells, uh, clean drinking water, uh, trying to microloans, getting people to generate an income, and that's happening now in, on the mainland off the island. Uh, in northern Ontario, trying to reach indigenous peoples uh, with hope and healing and the message of Jesus. Like, that's what we're doing in missions. We want God to be praised, but we want to bless people. And as we look at ourselves here right here in our region. Um, as we've been talking as leaders about the vision and where we're going, we're excited to be a blessing to, to this community. But it takes all of us together. So I want to ask you, do you have a passion? Hey, I'm in. I want to be used of God. I want to make a difference. And today, if you're simply chasing the wind, living for that which is temporary today, would you begin, God, Renew my zeal for you. Renew my heart that I want to, as I go forward, live for you. Uh, Walter Wink, looking at the impact of Jesus and how he changes life throughout history, um, talks about this. He, he looks at history and he says, you know, when you look at history, you always see people trying to get power, and then once they get the power, they create a system where they can oppress those under them take advantage of them. And he just, uh, society after society after society. And he describes this system, and he says this about it. It is characterized by unjust economic relations, oppressive political relations, biased race relations, patriarchal gender relations, 
hierarchical power relations and the use of violence to maintain them all. No matter what shape the dominating system of the moment might take, from the ancient Near Eastern states to the Pax Romana, to feudal Europe, to communist state capitalism, to modern market capitalism, the basic structure has persisted now for at least 5,000 years since the rise of the great conquest states of Mesopotamia around 3,000 BC. He says, if you go back before Abraham, 1,000 years before Abraham, 5,000 years ago, Middle East, uh, in Mesopotamia, first recorded civilization, you will see through the human story people making their way to the top and hurting people. But then he goes on to talk about Jesus. And he says it was Jesus and his upside-down kingdom that changed things. And how Jesus, even today, through his people, instead of trying to get to the top and use people, are going to the bottom to bless people and even to dark places. Friends, did you know around the world, we don't see it on the news, there's still Christians who are willing to give up their lives, go into North Korea, go into the dark places, confront the sex trafficking trade in, in the Far East, and all over the world actually, but around the world, because Jesus' passion is their passion. So I ask you again, if your passion is waning for God, would you today say, God, begin a new work in my heart. As I go forward with my life, I want to do that which is pleasing you. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, can I just say to you, at Woodside here, we are not lifting up religion to you. Just be religious. We're not lifting up politics to you. Hey, you need to you know, be part of this party and believe this and do that. We're not lifting up politics. We're not lifting up health and wealth. Hey, follow Jesus and he'll bless you out of your socks. Christmas time, lots of blessings. We're not lifting up any of that. We're lifting up the one that John said was God in the flesh, who cleared the temple, who healed the blind man, who's, who walked on the water, who was on a cross. And we ask the question, why was God on a cross? Because of his passion for you and for me. And John says that that same Jesus rose again the third day. And today we are here right with God because of him.